All right. Well, let me ask you to grab your Bible then and join me in the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Galatians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, we keep some in the back just in case you got out without your Bible today. You just raise your hand and we'll be happy to share a copy of God's Word with you and, and you can track along with us better. There's a note page in your bulletin. It looks like this and we would encourage you to find that as well. The story is told about two men who lived in a small village. They got into a terrible dispute that they just could not resolve. And so independently of one another, they decided to talk to the village elder. And the first man went to the elder's home and told his version of what had happened. And when he had finished, the elder said, you're absolutely right. Well, the second fellow called on the elder after that, told his side of the story, and the elder responded, You're absolutely right. And afterward, the village elder's wife scolded her husband and said, Those two guys told you two entirely different stories, and yet you told them that they were both absolutely right. That's impossible. They can't both be absolutely right. And he turned to his wife and he said, You're absolutely right. (laughs) Silly little story, but um, I I guess we'll never know if the town elder was really a source of wisdom or not. But uh, one thing we know for sure is that he was determined to avoid conflict, right? He was not going to get in the middle of all of that. And, you know, most of us can relate to that thought because most of us really do hate conflict, We hate confronting another person. How many hands would go up if I said, do you hate to confront other people? Yeah? Yeah, there's a a bunch of us in here. And yet most of us, I think, would, would at the same time agree that one of life's most consistent truisms is that avoiding confrontation is usually a recipe for even greater conflict, right? So putting it off doesn't really help things at all. I think most of us would agree with that. Well, no one recognized that truth more than did the Apostle Paul, and especially so, church family, when the issue on the table involved what it means to have a personal saving relationship with the living God. When the issue had to do with the true gospel, there was no one that Paul would back down from or avoid or refuse to call out or fail to confront. And we get a fresh reminder of that truth in his life with this next section of verses that we take up today as part of our ongoing explore of the amazing book of Galatians. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me show you what I mean in this moment of confrontation that we witness between the Apostle Paul and Peter. Verse 11, chapter 2. Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, but when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for the apostle Peter, the apostle Peter, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, bring your word to life. Amen and amen. The words, you're absolutely right, were clearly not in Paul's vocabulary here in this moment. We're going to step today into an awkward church potluck supper together. It's just an awkward kind of a moment. We're going to step into that. But before we do, let's just quickly uh, remember why the Holy Spirit prompts Paul then to write the letter of Galatians, but also this moment too. About a year and a half before this moment that we just read about, Paul and his ministry companion Barnabas had traveled into modern-day Turkey. In Paul's day, it was called Galatia. And they went into Turkey, into Galatia, for the sole purpose of introducing non-Jewish people to the claims, the truths of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he had done. They told the Galatians in several key cities that Jesus, as God in the flesh, had come into the world to make a personal relationship with a holy God possible between sinful persons and himself. Paul told them how Jesus died for for sinners on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose the third day, proving that he was more powerful than the sin in anyone's life and indeed more powerful than death itself. Anyone who believes, Paul says, simply believes, that's it, puts their faith in this loving, gracious gift that God has given to us through Jesus is instantly forgiven, saved, and given an eternal gift, the gift of life both now and life with the Lord God forever. Amen and amen. We've taken this true gospel message that Paul and Barnabas carried into Galatia. We have taken that message and we've condensed it down into this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's say it together because we believe it together, right? Let's say it out loud together. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen and amen. That's all we really need to know, right? Well, no sooner do Paul and Barnabas return to their home church in Antioch, having planted several Gentile churches in these key cities in Galatia, no sooner does that happen than the Jewish false teachers come in behind Paul. They're called Judaizers, and they come in behind Paul, and they start preaching another message, another gospel. Their message, Jesus plus other things equals everything. In other words, in order to be accepted by God, really be in a right relationship with God and, and loved by God, uh, these, these non-Jewish Christians, so said the Judaizer, these non-Jewish Christians need not only to have Jesus, you need Jesus, but you need to also follow all of the Jewish rules and traditions and dietary practices and other customs of the Jewish people. Only then can you really be sure that you are saved. That was the Judaizers' message that came in behind Paul. Well, this was a wholesale corruption of the true gospel. Nothing can be added to what Jesus has done for us by the cross and by his resurrection. Nothing can be added to that to make it better, can it? In fact, when you add to the gospel, the true gospel, what do you do? You actually take away from it. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. He did it all, and he did it once for all. Amen? 
Amen. We can't do anything to make God love us more. We can't do anything to make him want us more than he has already loved us and wanted us through faith in Jesus. When we add anything to Jesus, like the Judaizers were attempting to do, we actually turn salvation by grace through faith in, in Jesus into good works and good deeds equals salvation. We abandon the freedom of the true gospel and we replace it with an enslaving legalism. And we don't want to be a part of that. And nor did Paul. When Paul learns that these Judaizers have done this, he fires off this letter. It's to be copied and then it's to be circulated among these several Galatian churches. The seriousness of what's at stake is unmistakable almost from the very beginning. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be what? Let him be accursed. Let him be doomed forever. Do you think Paul is fired up here? I mean, he is really fired up. And and he's fired up for good reason. All that God's salvation is about, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, all of that is on the line. These new Christians' lives in Galatia, their, their, their relationship with God now and their eternity forever with him is on the line in this moment. So no wonder he is so fired up. Now, in order for the Judaizers to have gained a footing in the Galatian churches, they really had to do a great job of trashing Paul's credibility. And so if you were with us last time, we saw that Paul, realizing this, he, he understands that if he's going to talk with them about the true gospel, he has to, to reestablish his credibility with, with the Galatian people because it's been trashed by the Judaizers. And so he spends the remainder of chapter 1 and much of chapter 2 seeking to do just that. He reminds his readers that he's not a people pleaser, that he's not in this in order to gather a crowd around himself. The Judaizers had accused him of that. They also accused Paul of having a a tainted gospel, kind of a a half-true gospel, and he reminds them, no, that's not true. The gospel I gave to you, I got straight from Jesus. Jesus gave it to me, and I gave it to you. It's it's not a half gospel. It's the full truth about Jesus. And then he reminds them about his own life toward the end of chapter 1. Reminds them that it was Jesus who who knocked him off a horse on the road to Damascus and literally turned his life upside down and inside out. Transformed his life by the power of the true gospel. The one-time Christian killer was now the Jesus proclaimer. And he reminds them of the power of the true gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul tells the Galatians that after he got back to Antioch, after being with them, He then even goes up to Jerusalem, up to where the Christians, where Christianity was born, and 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 he visits the original disciples, the 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 first disciples of Jesus, and he visits the church leaders there in Jerusalem, just to confirm that what he is sharing is the gospel that Jesus gave, just to make sure that he's not preaching something different than they're preaching. So let's do this. 
Keep your finger tucked here in Galatians. Let's run back to the book of Acts for a moment and take a look at this meeting that Paul has in Jerusalem with those church leaders. Acts chapter 15. Keep a finger here, but we'll be right back. But let's go to Acts chapter 15. We learn more about this meeting in Jerusalem that Paul and Barnabas are going to go to. Verse 1, chapter 15. And again, we're just laying the groundwork for what's about to to be new material for us in chapter 2. Verse 1, chapter 15. Some, but some men came down to Antioch, that is to Paul's home church, down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that was the Judaizers' message. Jesus plus other things, right, equals everything. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary for those Gentiles to be circumcised and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, now take note of that, Peter, the apostle Peter, the lead disciple of the twelve, the one who walked on water, That Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What is that, church family? That is Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. So that's the true gospel. Peter says, that's what we've been giving. Now, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that is the Gentiles, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We Jews couldn't keep the Mosaic law. Why would you put that on the Gentiles? Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Stop right there. Peter's words are powerful. And the question of whether Gentiles needed Jewish rule keeping to supplement Jesus' saving work on the cross has been answered in this moment, at this, at this meeting, at this gathering. Now, if we go back to Galatians, to chapter 2, your finger is still there. Let's go back there. Find verse 7. Because Paul summarizes this whole thing himself beginning in verse 7. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that would be to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the Jews worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they 
to the Jews. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The clear ruling of the Jerusalem Council was that no matter who went and no matter to whom they went, all would carry the same message, which was what again? Yes, that would be the message that they would carry. So in a chapter and a half, Paul has done his best to show the Galatians why he is still trustworthy, still a credible witness to the only Jesus, the only salvation that these Gentiles in Galatia would ever need to know about. The Judaizers, in fact, are actually the ones with no credibility, and they're the ones who are promoting a false gospel. And then, as if to bring closure to all of this, so that he can really go in and talk about what he wants to talk about with his, with his Gentile friends, which is, is Jesus only, in order to do that, he, he, he's going to establish one more time, uh, an, uh, by another means, his credibility to his readers. Paul tells them about a confrontation that he has with the esteemed apostle Peter a confrontation that we just read about in verses 11 to 14. And as he tells the Galatians about this confrontation, he's not trying to brag. He's he's not trying to show off. He's not trying to make himself to be all that. He's simply trying to demonstrate with one more example that he's not only uh, an, an apostle with authority and credibility, but he even had to reprimand Peter on one occasion. The Galatians weren't getting a lesser apostle when they got Paul. They were getting a first-tier apostle. He thinks that this will, by sharing this incident, that it will further confirm to his friends that he, he really is a reliable witness when it comes to the true gospel. So we pick up the story, verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned right away that doesn't sound good right that doesn't sound good at all if paul were writing today he would say when peter came to antioch i had to get up in his grill i mean i had to go at it go at him face to face me and peter that's what he says because he was condemned he was guilty you know we've all had to have those face-to-face confrontations from time to time, right? They're never pleasant. Never pleasant. The village elder uh, in our story at the very beginning was fond of saying, you're absolutely right. He said that to everyone, but not Paul. He's not going there. So what was the cause of this this clash between two brothers, two uh, apostles? Well, sometime after the Jerusalem Council decision that we just looked at a moment ago, but not very long after, Peter actually travels north from Jerusalem to Antioch where Paul and and Barnabas are pastoring the church in that city. And the reason for Peter's going up to Antioch is, is never given. We don't know why he went, but we know from the Greek verb tenses that in this section that that this is not some quick overnight stop while Peter's on his way to somewhere else. He's actually going to hang out in Antioch for a while. And so he's been with the folks of this church family, which is made up of both non-Jewish and Jewish believers. 
and he's been with them for a while. He's just doing life with them like we do life here, loving God together, investing in each other, finding places to serve and enlarging the kingdom. He's just doing life with them, and he's doing it with them in the atmosphere that comes with Jesus plus nothing. It's an atmosphere of great freedom. All those ethnic distinctions between Gentiles and Jews is evaporated. It's not there. It's just people loving Jesus together. And then then Peter's enjoying that. And remember again his impassioned words that we read out of chapter 15 of Acts. Just remember one more time. What did he say? Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Those were Peter's words. That was, that was his heartfelt conviction. And it results in this moment in sweet intimacy and fellowship and, and oneness. Peter, a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool Jewish man, but enjoying rich fellowship with Gentile believers in Antioch. And Paul goes on to tell us that just like it's so common in, in, in churches today, there were meals that were shared frequently in the Antioch church. The people loved to get together and eat. Do you know any church family that likes to do that? How about this church family? We find lots of ways to get together to eat, don't we? And we eat a lot together. We share meals together in, in various ways and, and in various locations, and we create events so that we can do that. And in our life groups, a number of our life groups do this. They, some of them have to eat every week together. They, 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 they just have to do it that often. And so that was happening in Antioch. And Peter, though he was a Jewish man to the core, because of the true gospel, he has stepped fully into the fellowship and the, the life and the fun and the food of this Gentile church family, these brothers and sisters. There's Jews in this church family, but there's a lot of Gentiles. He ate whatever was set before him, and whoever was sitting beside him, he was just okay with that. That had not always been true. Before Peter knew Jesus, he would never have done any of this. He would have never fellowshiped with a Gentile. But now he doesn't care. Common faith in Jesus had torn down all these dividing walls that for centuries had separated the Jew from the Gentile. And he had no doubt participated in a number of meals by this time with this family and, and had worshipfully gathered together and, and had shared communion with the believers of this church family. And yet Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why was he condemned? What, what had he done? Verse 12. Before certain men came from James... Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Well, that's what he did. The certain men, who are they? The certain men who have come down from Jerusalem, who are they? Hey, they're the Judaizers, right? You're, you're, you're with me there. They're the Judaizers. They've come down to Antioch, claiming to be from James, Paul says who was Jesus' half-brother, and he's the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. We know that they're not from James because James had been part of the Jerusalem council. James was a a dyed-in-the-wool, Jesus-plus-nothing guy. So they're lying. 
These men were of the party of the circumcision, part of the Jesus plus other things equals everything party. And not only are they teaching a false gospel, but they're, they're actually saying that James and the group in Jerusalem are supporting them, which was an absolute lie. But so committed are they to the old Jewish ways, the customs, the ceremonies, the the traditions, the rituals that they've lived with their whole life that they just can't let go of those. And so they take Jesus, but they hold on to their legalistic, works-based relationship with God through the rules of Judaism. Now, Peter understood them, and he understood what was going on, which is what makes what happens now even more remarkable when the judaizers came to antioch we're told by paul that peter began to draw back and separate himself from the gentiles fearing this judaizer party drew back paul chose that word very carefully it's a greek word to describe a strategic military retreat the word he used In other words, Paul says that in a a careful, gradual, calculating way so that he wouldn't attract attention, Peter began to pull back from the Gentiles now that the Judaizers were on the scene. He found excuses to stop accepting their invitations to go to the potluck dinners. He found reasons not to join them in other activities that they were doing just kind of hanging out with the Jewish crowd. And, and, and Paul says, finally, he just separated himself altogether. Now, again, Peter's behavior is, is rather baffling, isn't it? Don't you, in light of what we just read that he had said, it, it, it's kind of hard to, to imagine that th- this would be Peter. But Peter does this, and Paul tells us why he does it. He says, Peter was what? Afraid, wasn't he? He's afraid of the Judaizer party, the circumcision party. Afraid. In what way would Peter have been afraid of this group? Certainly not afraid that they were going to kill him or or arrest him and throw him in prison because they they saw value in the person of Jesus. They're not going to do that. The most the Judaizers could do would be to go back to Jerusalem and trash Peter's good name, ridicule him, malign him back home, try to discredit him and damage his authority and his credibility so that he wouldn't have as much influence, just like the Judaizers had done to to Paul in Galatia. That was the most they could do to him, and yet that was enough for Peter. Peter was afraid of exactly that. Afraid of losing his good name, his standing um, amongst the the, the Jewish community. He he was afraid of that. Afraid of losing his reputation at the hands of this this self-righteous group of religionists whose whose doctrine was flat-out heretical and whose tactics were, were deceitfully sinful. He's afraid of them and afraid of what they'll do to his good name. Now, are we surprised that, that Peter would, would react like this? Are you surprised that Peter would, I mean, that Peter would do this? I mean, this is the man who Jesus changed his name to what? The Rock, right? This is the guy we're talking about. 
Are you surprised that he would cave in to the fear of these Judaizers? I mean, it, it, it kind of takes us back, it takes me back. But, you know, the Peter that we have come to know um, from the pages of Scripture often did battle with his old self and his new self in Jesus. They kind of fought, didn't they? Just like happens in your life and mine. Our old person, the old person that we were before we knew Jesus battles with the new person we are in Jesus. And so Peter would pendulum back and forth on the pages of Scripture from moments of great courage and, and daring and fiercelessness and resolve to feelings of weakness and, and backpedaling and, and retreat and, and fear. In one moment, he is under divine inspiration, declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, he's the rock. And in the next breath, he's, he's saying, Jesus, you can't die on a cross. You're God, but I'm not going to let you do that. In one moment, he's, he's throwing his leg over the side of a boat in a raging storm and walking on the water towards Jesus. And in the very next moment, he's what? He's sinking, he's drowning, and he's saying, Jesus, save me. In one moment, he's saying on the night before the cross that he would, he would rather die than deny Jesus. And then within hours of saying that, he denies knowing, even knowing Jesus three times. And even after the resurrection, Jesus says, go and make disciples, make followers of me, tell others about me, fish for men. And Peter blatantly disobeys and goes fishing for what? For fish. And, you know, we're so like Peter. Or, or maybe Peter's just so like us. Struggling to maintain a consistent walk and a witness. He would show great courage at times. And then he would stumble. He would, he would staunchly defend the faith. And then he would succumb to compromise. And maybe that's why we, we're just so attracted to Peter. Because he's so like us. We can relate to him. When he does what he does here in Antioch, he plays right into the hands of the Judaizers who must have been elated to have drawn the preeminent apostle Peter into their camp, not in terms of belief because Peter didn't believe like they believed, but sadly, he's been drawn into their camp by his practice. He's not practicing what he had so boldly proclaimed in Acts 15. He's driven by fear. Well, what's the consequence of that? What's the fallout that comes from this lapse of courage, this failure to resolve, uh, to the, the failure of resolve and the, and the calculated slide into fearful hypocrisy? What's the, what's the price tag for that? Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. The Jews in the church at Antioch acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The Greek word hypocrites is the word that Paul uses here. We get our word hypocrisy from this Greek word. It's a word that originally came out of the Greek theater and it referred to an actor who would wear a mask as he played a particular character. And then when he would change characters, he would put on another mask. And so it was called Hippocrates. A hypocrite was someone who, like an actor, hides behind something in order to mask their true self. And that was Peter in this moment. 
And not only does he withdraw from the Gentile brothers and sisters out of fear in an effort to protect his own good name and reputation from being maligned by the Judaizers, acting like them when he really doesn't believe like them, but because he was a natural leader, because he was a notable apostle, because he had been with Jesus, he, by his example, influenced all the other Jewish believers in the Antioch church to join him in withdrawing from the Gentile believers. Paul says even Barnabas was taken in by Peter's action. And it's clear that that Paul is, is not expecting that. He is really surprised. They were the closest of friends. They loved each other dearly. These two had partnered together to take the gospel into Galatia. They had gone together to the Jerusalem council. They had shared that decision Jesus plus nothing equals everything message. They were, they were now co-pastors in Antioch. They had taught together, prayed together. They had ministered together. They had suffered together. And together they had preached many, many, many times by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone is someone saved. Amen and amen. But even he, Paul says, was led astray by the fear-driven hypocrisy of Peter putting distance between himself and the Gentile members of his own church family. That's what happened to Barnabas. Now, the effect on the Antioch church is is disastrous. We can only begin to guess how hurtful this intentional separation would have been for the Gentile believers in this church. But just put yourself in, in their place, and you can begin to feel what that would have been like. Very hurtful. And you talk about undermining trust. The very pastors who proclaim that we're all one under the banner of Jesus plus nothing are practicing something other than what they're preaching. That undermines trust. We can almost literally see this giant wedge being being driven in between the Jewish believers on the one side and the Antioch Gentile, non-Jewish believers on the other side, sisters and brothers who had just a short time ago been experiencing the joy and the pleasure of holding everything together in unity and oneness. There was nothing between them. And all of that has changed. Now, Peter knew that what he was doing was wrong, totally hypocritical. He had heard in person the prayer of Jesus on the night before Jesus died. Out of John 17, remember these words. These are the, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed. Of all the things he could have prayed about for his church, this is what he prays. John 17. Father, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples in the room that night, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So he's praying for us in this moment. That they may all be What? One, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be what? One, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's Jesus' prayer, and Peter heard it. Peter knew what he was doing was wrong, but in this moment, 
fear of man held sway, and he took others with him in his hypocrisy. People were being deeply hurt. Others were being confused. The unity of the church was, was fractured. And worst of all, the true gospel was being corrupted. Not by word, but by what? By action. As the old saying goes, actions always speak louder than words. Yes, we all, we all know that. We believe it. Well, Paul concludes this sad telling by saying that the instant that he recognized what was happening, he is in Peter's face, right? Not an ounce of hesitation. In his face and confronting this sin. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, they were not walking a straight spiritual course. I said to Peter, before them all, don't miss that. This isn't a private conversation. This is in front of the entire church family. It's like like Peter and Paul right up here on the platform. And Peter and Paul just gets right into his face. Because Peter's sin was so public and known by everybody, and, and truly this sin was impacting everyone in the church, Paul calls it out in front of everyone. It's been said that rarely is it advantageous to correct in secret what has occurred in public. And I believe that's really true. That would have really been true here in this moment because this whole church was reeling, hurting, feeling the pain of Peter's divisive hypocrisy. Certainly, Paul found no pleasure in what he was doing. None. There was no desire on his part to lord it over Peter. He, he's not trying to build up his own reputation at the expense of a fellow uh, brother. His motive isn't to humiliate Peter publicly in front of everybody. His motive is to correct a serious error that is causing many other believers to stumble and to be confused. Paul simply could not and would not tolerate anything that threatened the integrity of Jesus plus nothing. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, which is what you were doing before the Judaizers came down here, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you force them to have Jesus plus other things? All Paul has to do at this point is, is, is reveal the inconsistency of Peter's behavior and the confronting work is done. He reminded him that when he first arrived there, Peter was freely fellowshipping with all the Gentile believers, regularly eating with them, doing the Lord's Supper with them. He'd openly visited their homes, joined them at their potlucks, worshipped with them, showing absolutely no evidence of prejudice or, or, or legalism. He had lived like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. And then out of fear, it all changed. Though Paul doesn't take the story any further for us, we can reasonably conclude that this painful, awkward moment, this time, was weathered by the church family. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, 
The church in Antioch will continue to send Paul and Barnabas to the Gentile world with the Jesus plus nothing gospel. They're going to keep doing that. So they, they must have mended the hurt to be able to, to unite in that way. They weren't going to stay a church, a church family that was fractured. And then when Peter writes his New Testament letters, he speaks of Paul in the most respectful and, and esteeming way, indicating that, that there's no residual hangover of, of resentment um, against Paul. In fact, Peter in that, one of his letters writes about the place of humility in a growing Christian's life. And no doubt this was one moment when Peter learned humility, right? And again, the only reason Paul even tells of this incident with Peter The only reason he brings it up is because the Judaizers had trashed his credibility in the hearts and minds of the Galatians. And the very thing Peter was afraid of would happen to him did happen to Paul. And so he relates this story, providing the Galatians with yet one more proof that he's not a second-hand apostle. He he, he gets everything he gets from Jesus and he, he is ranking right up there with someone of the the stature and the position of Peter. He even had to confront the apostle Peter. Now, as we wrap things up this morning, if you flip that note page over, there are a, there's just a few takeaway truths that we can extract from, from this, this short passage. And I've teased them out for myself, but maybe they will be a help to you. And even as we've talked, maybe some of these truths, other truths have already come to your mind that we could add to these. But, but here's some that came to my mind. First, there's only one opinion of me and one opinion of you that really matters in this world. And, and whose opinion is that? <laughs> That's God's opinion. Do you believe that this morning? Yeah, Peter forgot that. And he began to worry about others, what others might think about him if the Judaizers started calling him a, a Gentile lover or a, or a traitor to his own people. And it mattered to him what other people were thinking. He forgot that the only opinion that really matters is Jesus' opinion. My dad, who was a pastor, was fond of saying, and he repeated this to me a lot. Uh, He would say, what others think of you, Tim, is none of your business. And he would say that a lot to me. And I knew what he was doing. He was just trying to help me in, in my role as a, as a pastor of a church. What, what others think of you is none of your business. That has been great advice for me. It has spared me a few sleepless nights for sure. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. Fear of man will prove to be a what? A snare. Every time it will be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever has their faith in the Lord, not in the fear of man, but faith in the Lord, is kept safe. And honestly, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, there's only one opinion that we should ever really care about. And that's God's opinion. If he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we have lived without hypocrisy, his gospel, his word consistently in our world, that'll be enough, right? Yeah, his opinion. Second, never follow a man. Follow the God-man. Follow Jesus. The Jewish brothers and sisters in the church family at Antioch got off track here. They were so focused on the captivating personality and the position of Peter that they lost sight of Jesus and the unifying truth of the true gospel. They, they were 
They were enamored with Peter. Following the man. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And I don't see anybody else's name there, do you? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, there are some incredibly gifted pastors and church leaders, and and they make some wonderfully helpful contributions to our spiritual lives and and our growth through their their messages and their books and their conferences and all that stuff. But, But brothers and sisters, they are just men and women, right? That's all. With feet of clay, like you, like me, and they will inevitably disappoint you. Just like Peter. But not like Jesus. So who do we fix our eyes on? Jesus. Third, right doctrine without consistent behavior always produces what? Yeah, hypocrisy. Peter had the doctrine, didn't he? I mean, he had it nailed. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He had that down. But... His behavior, his practice didn't match his doctrine. And the result was hypocrisy. Psalm 139, a prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way, any sin in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Matthew 7, verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We must ever be asking the Lord to search our hearts and scrutinize our behavior so that we witness of Jesus as much by our walk as we do by our words. Yes? Right doctrine without consistent behavior is hypocrisy. Fourth, live for Jesus like you're always being watched. Why? (laughs) Because you are being watched. Right now, you're being watched. Right now, I am being watched. What Peter did before and after the Judaizers pulled into Antioch was carefully being observed by everybody in that church. And before they got there, Peter was all close and friendly and and, and, and loving on the Gentiles. And when the Judaizers got there, he backed away and nobody missed that. They all saw it. Everybody in the church saw it. His life was on display, a living letter, if you will, of Jesus. And everybody was reading the letter. The same is true for you and me, is it not? Today, right now, you are a living letter if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you're being read every day. Not just by what you say, but by how you live. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to God. Not to you, but to God. Hebrews 4.13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. (laughs) Not even you, me. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We live for Jesus like we're always being watched because why? We're always being watched. Last, compromising God's truth only weakens. It never strengthens. And that comes out of this passage too. Peter's actions driven by fear and will will lead to, to compromise of the true gospel. 
Jesus plus nothing was distorted by Peter's actions into Jesus plus other things. And a church that had known the, the beauty and the power and the joy of vastly different people living in unity and harmony and, and oneness together, that, that was split right down the middle of its ethnic life. The church was just separated like you'd put a, put a, a, a wall right down the middle of this church. Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other. And in that condition, this church instantly lost its voice in the world to lost and dying people who needed Jesus. They had no voice. 2 Corinthians 6.17, So leave the corruption and the compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. May we learn from Peter today. He's in the book so we can learn from him. May we learn from Paul about the appropriateness of confronting when it's appropriate to do that. And and may we learn from the Galatian church family and from this letter that actions really do speak louder than words. It's essential that we practice what we proclaim. Yes? Yes. So that a dying world will really know that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for an intensely practical time together in your word. Every one of us bump up against these issues every single day. We know the truth. The question is, are we living it? How are we doing that? Are we pointing people to you? Are we fleshing out Jesus plus nothing? May it be so. Fill us with your spirit so that it can be so. And Heavenly Father, if there is somebody in this room who has never embraced the Jesus plus nothing truth of the gospel, still trying to earn your love and your approval by being good, trying to follow the rules of some kind, I would just pray that you would liberate that one today in this hour. Free them from enslavement to legalism and performance. Release them into the true freedom of living in Jesus, who has done it all. Lord, we love you. We really do love you as the Bible Church family, but only because you loved us first. And we say thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.